Before we start the program, I want to introduce you to an event that's coming up this August. The Loma Linda Institute of Worship is offering a worship leadership certificate to help leaders and pastors take their congregation's worship experience to the next level. This August 9-12 through 12 event will include presenters Randy Roberts, Adriana Pereira, Nicholas Zork, Wayne Buckner, Richard Hickam, and more, and provide the opportunity to perform on stage with Steve Green and the Heritage Singers. Come sing, pray, write new music, share testimonies and resources, and grow together with like-minded worship leaders from across the world. Go to LLIW.net to register. One of the moments that I witnessed God's active grace happened about six years ago, just before I came down here to Loma Linda University Church, and it happened at the Napa Community Seventh-day Adventist Church. The young people would meet on Friday night for a special program, and on this particular night, they had made a four by eight foot chalkboard out of a piece of plywood. And they had all the students write on there in chalk, what are the things that they feel are holding them back from being the leaders that God called them to be? What are the things that have brought you shame, bring guilt into your life? And then at the end, they were gonna march it out to the parking lot where it had been raining for three days straight and it was forecasted to rain that night. Well, wouldn't you know it? The rain cleared up about 10 minutes before they were supposed to take it outside. The leaders got together and said, what do we do? Should we take pitchers of water and ceremonially do that outside? And they said, okay, well, I guess that's what we're gonna do. But the most amazing thing happened. As soon as they marched this chalkboard outside, the rain began again, and it didn't just rain a little bit. As they were praying and singing together outside, it was as if the heavens just opened up and buckets came down and washed that board so much there wasn't a trace of chalk on it. They ran back indoors and the boys came in with the chalkboard, and as it dried, there was not a speck of chalk on there. From that moment on, none of those students could ever tell you that God doesn't exist because they experienced firsthand the active grace of God that night. For Thomas Wisniewski of Telford, Shropshire, England, it was a normal, ordinary day. He got up, went to work, I assume looking forward to eight hours of doing what he always did. He was a forklift operator for Edwards Transport. That he would do his day of work and then he would go home. His day of work included moving cheese. In the large factory warehouse where Thomas worked, there were hundreds of thousands of pounds of cheddar cheese. I don't think I could have taken the aroma. But for Thomas, he was expecting, I'm sure, just a normal, ordinary day. He would finish his day at work, would go home, no doubt, to talk to his fiancée as they continued to make their wedding plans for their upcoming nuptials. Normal day suddenly changed when his world caved in on him. Caved in on him. In fact, later people would say it was a miracle that he survived. He was suddenly buried under the cheese. It would take eight hours and 13 fire rescue teams and an aerial ladder platform to finally dig him out of all of the cheese. I want to show you what happened, show you what happened to Thomas Wisniewski that day. But before I show you, I want to just give you a little bit of proportion. Remember that as you look at Thomas in his work setting, the 
the shelves that you will see are just under 60 feet tall. And then a warning. Once you see this, you may not shop at Costco again. <laughs> so look at what happened to Thomas Wisniewski that day in May of 2016. So here's the warehouse. You see some men down in the front going about their duties, their business. You see all the cheese, and then you see coming down the center aisle, there comes Thomas driving his forklift. He's on his way to, well, to move the cheese. He's on his way there, and he realizes, I'm going to have to take a little bit of a detour here because they've put a bit of an obstacle in my pathway, but I'm a good driver. I'll be able to take care of it. I'll manage it. And so he does. Whoops. Just kind of, ooh. Mercy. Can you imagine? Just normal, ordinary life, and then suddenly his world just caved in on him. Unbelievable miracle that he survived it. But maybe you look at that and you say, I can relate to that. Going along my normal, ordinary way, all is good, and suddenly something happens and my world collapses. It all falls in on me. I don't know what to do. The trials, the tra traumas, the tragedies, the temptations... It's overwhelming. Is there any help? Is there any way to get out of this? Maybe you know what Thomas Wisniewski felt like. Or maybe, maybe you know what Chippy felt like. You may have heard Chippy's story. I'm going to share it with those of you who have not. Chippy the parakeet. I share it to you in the words and from the pen of Max Lucado. Max Lucado writes, Chippy the parakeet never saw it coming. One second, he was peacefully perched in his cage. The next, he was sucked in, washed up, and blown over. The problems began when Chippy's owner decided to clean Chippy's cage with a vacuum cleaner. She removed the attachment from the end of the hose and stuck it in the cage. And then the phone rang. She had barely said hello when Chippy got sucked in. The bird owner gasped, put down the phone, turned off the vacuum, and opened the bag. There was Chippy, still alive, but stunned. <laughs> Since the bird was covered with dust and soot, she grabbed him and raced to the bathroom, turned on the faucet, and held Chippy under the running water. Then realizing that Chippy was soaked and shivering, she did what any compassionate bird owner would do. She reached for her hair dryer and blasted the pet with hot air. <laughs> Poor Chippy never knew what hit him. <laughs> a few days after the trauma, the reporter who had initially written about the event contacted Chippy's owner to see how the bird was recovering. Well, she replied, Chippy doesn't sing much anymore. <laughs> he just sits and stares. <laughs> and Lucado says... It's not hard to see why. Sucked in, washed up, and blown over. That's enough to steal the song from the stoutest heart. So maybe you say, I know what Chippy felt like. That's been my life. Peacefully perched, and then suddenly I'm sucked in. 
I'm washed over and I'm blown dry and I just don't have any song left. I don't know what to do with the trials and troubles that face me. What do we do with those troubles and trials? It strikes me that, that it's always difficult to face difficult times. Troubles and trials, always a problem. But that somehow, in the modern era, it seems to me, it's even more challenging than it used to be. Why, you ask? Simply this. We have an expectation that life ought to be pain-free, even trouble-free. We have a fix for most everything. Headache? Take an Advil. Sprained your ankle? Take some ibuprofen. Stomach upset? Chew on some tongues. You don't know what to do with your time? Then escape to the movies. You're hungry, lonely, angry, tired? Binge on Netflix. There is some fix for your problem somewhere. Somehow you'll get through it, and you won't have to feel the pain. And then life caves in. We get sucked in. And we realize there is not an easy out to this. So what do we do? What do we do in those moments, in those experiences, where we have a thorn in the flesh that even the most sturdy pair of tweezers cannot extract? Just like Paul. What do we do with those experiences? Well, today we turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 12. We turn there to understand what happened to Paul and to see if there isn't some way that what happened to him and what he drew from it might not bless and benefit us even all of these centuries later. Now, Paul has been, in this section of 2 Corinthians, writing his defense for his call as an apostle. My ministry, he writes, is authentic and genuine and divinely inspired. There have been people who have crept into the church at Corinth who have cast doubt on the authenticity of his call to ministry. So for three chapters, chapters 10, 11, and 12, Paul has been writing, defending his ministry. Take some time to read those three chapters, and you will see that the heat of Paul's ire emanates from the page. He is intent on saying, this is a call from God. He shows them his CV, his bona fides. I'm a Jew. I'm a descendant of Abraham. I'm a child of Abraham. He tells them about his experiences, many of them profoundly difficult. And then he rather gingerly, in chapter 12, enters into a section where he's going to share with them about his visions and his revelations from God. This is heady terrain to be able to make the claim, I have heard from God, I've encountered God, I've seen the fingerprints of God. He realizes that that can be mistaken, that people will think you're just full of yourself. And so he employs a writing technique, not unknown in his day, of speaking of himself in the third person. He distances himself just a bit to try not to sound like a bragger from Texas. He says, okay, this is what happened to me, and this is the final mark of the authenticity of my call. It's right there in that context that we encounter his thorn in the flesh. 
That's where we encounter his troubles. Those for whom life has caved in may want to pay attention to what Paul says. So read it with me. 2 Corinthians chapter 12. I start with verse 1. I must go on boasting. Although there's nothing to be gained, I will go on to visions and revelations from the Lord. I know a man in Christ, he's speaking of himself, who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven, whether it was in the body or out of the body, I do not know, God knows. And I know that this man, whether in the body or apart from the body, I do not know, but God knows, was caught up to paradise and heard inexpressible things, things that no one is permitted to tell. I will boast about someone like that, but I will not boast about myself except about my weaknesses. Even if I should choose to boast, I would not be a fool because I would be speaking the truth. But I refrain so no one will think more of me than is warranted by what I do or say or because of these surpassingly great revelations. Therefore, in order to keep me from becoming conceited, I was given a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me, but he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. I want to talk to a specific group of people today. I want to talk to those among you who walked into worship this morning in the midst of trial, trauma, tragedy, temptation, trouble. You've been struggling not knowing where to turn, what to do next, feeling like life has caved in, like you've been sucked out of normal life, and suddenly you're in deep difficulties. I want to talk to that group of people. I want to talk to you about something very specific. You'll remember that in this series, how sweet the sound, the melody of grace, we are taking seriously the challenge of the writer to the letter to the Hebrews. Chapter 12, where that writer simply says this, See to it that no one misses the grace of God. See to it that no one misses the grace of God. That anyone who enters in through these doors will have an opportunity to know of God's grace. We're taking that challenge. We've talked about the cleansing grace of God for those who come in guilty about the accepting grace of God for those who come in shame-filled. Today now we want to ask about those who experience trials. What is there for you? This past week I attended meetings, meetings of the senior pastors of college and university churches in the North American Division of Seventh-day Adventists. It's not a large group. We met around a table. On Tuesday morning, Charles Tapp, senior pastor of the Sligo Church, Tacoma Park, Maryland, had the devotional. Now, if you've heard Charles Tapp speak, you know that he has this rich, resonant, deep bass voice. 
I hate that. <laughs> so that when Charles speaks, people listen. So Charles gave the devotional. And in the devotional, he read from a little book entitled Jesus Calling. Jesus Calling is a devotional book that is written as though written by Jesus himself, and you read as a listener to what Jesus might say to you. This is part of what Charles read to us that morning. My peace, he read, is the treasure of treasures, the pearl of great price. And in that deep voice, I could imagine Jesus speaking. It is an exquisitely costly gift, both for the giver and the receiver. I purchased this peace for you with my blood. You receive this gift by trusting me in the midst of life's storms. Listen to these next two sentences. If you have the world's peace, what is the world's peace? Everything going your way. You don't seek my unfathomable peace. Thank me when things do not go your way because spiritual blessings come wrapped in trials. Did you catch that? Spiritual blessings come wrapped in trials. Adverse circumstances are normal in a fallen world. Accept, expect them each day. Rejoice in the face of hardship, for I have overcome the world. Spiritual blessings come wrapped in trials. And then Charles told us the story. The story of a farmer in the 1800s. A farmer whose horse managed to escape his corral. The neighbor saw the horse escape and said to the farmer, Oh, that's bad. To which the farmer said, How do you know? The next day the horse returned, followed by ten wild horses. And the neighbor looked at the farmer and said, Oh, that's good. And he said, How do you know? The following day, the farmer's son was trying to break one of the wild horses. It bucked him off. The young man landed and broke his leg, and the neighbor said, oh, that's bad. And the farmer said, how do you know? The following day, their country declared war on their enemies, and all the able-bodied young men were drafted, except for the man with the broken leg. And the neighbor said, oh, that's good. And the farmer said, how do you know? And Charles said that story could go on and on and on because it is built around the premise that when we judge our experiences only based on what we can see and hear and feel and taste, then we judge them based on whether or not those experiences taste good and look good and feel good, etc. That's the judgment that we make. But that's not the whole story. And I listened to Charles talk. And as he drew to a conclusion, I said, Charles, thank you so much. You've just written my sermon for me. That's very good. And then Eunice in the table said, how do you know? <laughs> so I have some questions. You can't always tell. So when I come to this image of an apostle with a thorn in his flesh that the tweezers cannot extract and which God is not extracting, I want to ask some questions, four to be precise. What is it? Is it good or bad? Why do you have it? And what do you learn from it? The first three will be brief. We'll spend our time on the fourth. So my first question about this thorn in the flesh is, what is it? 
Well, we don't know exactly what it is. Paul doesn't tell us. He just says, I had a thorn in the flesh. That has not stopped scholars and Bible students from trying to ascertain exactly what it was. Throughout the years, throughout the centuries, all kinds of suggestions have been made with the most minimal of biblical evidence. It was migraine headaches. It was poor vision. It was malaria. It was a nauseated stomach. It was an ineffective pattern of speech. It was his enemies who were constantly after him. And you can just go on with the list. All kinds of suggestions are made. Bottom line, we don't know what it was, but we do know this. It was difficult enough, painful enough, that on at least three formal occasions, Paul made petition to God, please pull out this thorn. And God said no. But we don't know what it was, which may be a good thing, because then you can think, well, it's what I'm experiencing. Second, was it good or was it bad? Well, according to Charles, probably both. We could say, well, it was bad because it didn't feel good. And if we're judging it just based on human limited knowledge, we would have to say that's bad. But then on the other hand, how many things do we learn when we're not in pain of some kind? So maybe it was good. Thirdly, why did he experience it? Why does he have this thorn in the flesh? Now, for this one, we do know the answer. We do know the answer because the text tells us the reason. It says, because Paul received such exalted revelations, God wanted to keep his feet firmly planted on the ground. I don't want you to get conceited. I want to read to you that exchange in that part of the passage, this time reading from Eugene Peterson's paraphrase, The Message. I think he captures very well the essence of this dialogue between Paul and God. So here it is. Because of the extravagance of those revelations, and so I wouldn't get a big head, I was given the gift of a handicap to keep me in constant touch with my limitations. Satan's angels did his best to get me down. What he, in fact, did was push me to my knees. No danger then of walking around high and mighty. At first, I didn't think of it as a gift and begged God to remove it. Three times I did that, and then he told me, My grace is enough. It's all you need. My strength comes into its own in your weakness. Once I heard that, I was glad to let it happen. I quit focusing on the handicap and began appreciating the gift. It was a case of Christ's strength moving in on my weakness. Now I take limitations in stride and with good cheer. These limitations that cut me down to size, abuse, accidents, oppositions, bad breaks. I just let Christ take over. And so the weaker I get, the stronger I become. Amen. This is why it's given to you, Paul. You have been privileged you have been blessed to be caught up into the very presence of God. Now you're being called upon to defend your ministry. The temptation would be very strong to step out and in arrogance say, you people don't know what you're talking about. You have no idea who I am and who I know and what I've seen. 
So, Paul, I'm going to keep you humble. I'm going to keep you on your knees, feet firmly planted on the ground. That's the reason why. Now, that's the reason for Paul's trial, for Paul's thorn in the flesh. I don't know the reason for yours. Could it be that, I suppose? But the truth is, if you peruse the pages of Scripture, you will find that there are many reasons for such trials to come into our lives. It could be that it's just simply our human nature warring with the divine nature that Jesus has placed within us and that tension that is created in that battle. We could face the trials because of choices we've made or choices other people have made. We could face the trial because we live in a world that is fractured and broken by sin, and therefore random things happen, and it just happened to us. Many different reasons why it could happen. So rather than always trying to figure out why, maybe it ought to be the fourth question that truly interests us. And that is the question, what lesson did Paul learn? What can we learn from those trials that come? I suppose one of the first lessons that would be pointed out would be the lesson of saying, stay with today. Don't try to look into tomorrow. I mean, Jesus himself said that in the Sermon on the Mount. Forget about tomorrow. Today has enough trouble. Take care of today. So just take one step at a time, one experience at a time, one moment at a time, one day at a time. Don't try to get out ahead of God. That would be a good lesson, would it not? It's like the pastor and speaker, Mark Coleman, who tells about his love for hiking. I had a love for hiking, and so I wanted to pass this on to my son. His son, Peter, was five years old at the time. And so I arranged and set up a hike that we could take together with attention to the fact that he was a five-year-old. We would hike just a bit of the northern Appalachian Trail. We would hike around this one mountain. We would end up at a beautiful lake, and we would camp there overnight, and it would be a wonderful father-son bonding time. He explained to Peter, you're going to have to keep walking. You're going to have to keep walking. Just stick with me. So they took off. For some reason, Dad made an in-course correction. Instead of hiking around the mountain, they hiked over the mountain. Mistake. All kinds of loose rock and loose soil, uphill, downhill, very difficult. His five-year-old falling all the time, ripping up his pants, bruising his shins and his knees. And finally, he said, five-year-old Peter just sat down and cried. He said, I walked over to him, and he looked up at me, and before I could say anything, Dad, Dad, I know. It's okay if I cry as long as I keep walking. That's some wisdom from a five-year-old tyke. What he's saying is I just have to stay at it, just have to keep walking, step at a time, an hour at a time, a day at a time. Maybe that's the lesson we need to learn in trials. It's a good lesson, but it's not Paul's lesson. Paul's lesson was different than that. 
It appears in the statement that Jesus makes to him in answer to his prayer. I want to read it to you again one more time, this time from the New Living Translation, because I thought it captured that statement particularly well. Listen to this section of the passage. Three different times, I begged the Lord to take it away. Each time he said, my grace is all you need. My power works best in weakness. So now now I am glad to boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ can work through me. That's why I take pleasure in my weaknesses and in the insults, hardships, persecutions, and troubles that I suffer for Christ. For when I am weak, then I am strong. My grace is all you need. My power works best in weakness. That's the lesson Jesus wants Paul to learn, to live. My grace, my strength. Now, there's an interesting word in the original that when it says, my power works best, in weakness. Or as the TNIV renders it, my power is made perfect in weakness. It's an interesting word in the original. Because what it is, is a word the sense of which says what happens when something is thoroughly, fully, and completely finished, when it is brought to the end which was its purpose. Teleotai. Teleotai is the word. That which is thoroughly and fully and completely finished, that which reaches the end which was its purpose. So what Jesus is saying to Paul is, when you come to grips with your weakness, when you understand it and admit, I can't do it, that is the moment when my power can step in and work to its best, moving whatever my purpose is toward the full and thoroughly completed end in your life. When you come to that point where you are no longer trying to push forward your agenda, then I step in and carry forward mine. And Paul has a word for that. The word is grace. That's the grace of God. Pastor and writer Kyle Eidelman tells of the experience of moving. We all hate moving. All hate that experience of having to pack everything and haul it out into the truck and move to the other place. You know the experience. Kyle says, we were moving. I had an old, large, heavy desk. Probably the heaviest piece of furniture we had, so I saved it to the very end. I just didn't want to have to deal with it. But finally at the end, there it is staring at me. So Kyle says, I finally decided, all right, here it goes. And so he went over and said, I got behind that desk, and I began to push and to heave and to hoe and to struggle and to strain and try to move that desk, slide it across the floor. It began to move, but it was really hard work. And then he says, my four-year-old boy saw me and ran over to help me. He kind of got down there underneath me, and he was pushing and stressing and straining and heaving and hoeing, trying to help. 
And then he stopped. He looked up at me and he said, Dad, you're getting in my way. (laughs) And so I said, oh, really? And so he said, I stepped back. And I let him do it. And there he was, all the force, all the energy he could expend, every ounce of strength in his body. Nothing. That's Paul's point. When you come to that point and say, with all these trials, with my caved-in world, nothing I do is working. And you recognize, God, I can't do it. God says, all right, just step aside. God applies his strength. And then we can stand back and say, see that? That's my father. (laughs) It's my father moving that desk. That is his strength being brought to bear. Caring thoroughly and fully to completion what he has intended all along. That's grace. It's not the cleansing grace that washes away our guilt. It's not the accepting grace that frees us and heals us from our shame. It's the empowering grace that strengthens us to live as God would have us live in the world. Now, here's what's curious to me. The word that Paul uses there in that passage, to lay a tie, to say he'll carry it forward to its full, intended, ultimate completion, is a slightly different form of the same word that Jesus uttered from the cross when his life had reached its full, its ultimate, its final, intended completion. From the cross, when he cried out, to tell us, die which we translate, it is finished. This is that for which I lived. This is the moment that everybody in the surrounding world looking on would say it is the moment of utter weakness, of devastation, of loss. Jesus has been defeated. And yet as that cry to Telestai echoes through time, Somehow that cross rises in history, towering o'er the wrecks of time, so that the moment of deepest humiliation, the moment of abject weakness, becomes the symbol of God's power to save, His eternal power to accomplish that which He sees fit to accomplish. And that's what Paul says. Says there's that moment in your life when your world has caved in, when everything you do is not working, where you will have to decide, am I going to keep pushing the desk on my own, or will I make a decision to surrender? Surrender to the truth about me, I can't do it. And the truth about God, that his strength works best in my weakness. And Paul calls that grace. So if you were one of those people who walked in this morning, like Thomas Wisniewski, your world has collapsed. It has caved in on you. Like Chippy, suddenly you were sucked into the darkness and power washed and power dried. And you're still figuring out, 
Where am I to turn? How do I handle this? What am I to do? Paul has a suggestion. From his thorn-in-the-flesh experience, he says, Surrender. Admit your weakness. And God's strength will be fully on display. Paul has a word for that. And the word is grace.